You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out what an ethnographic study of receptionists uncovered. One of the assumptions that is is commonly held is that the repeat prescription is simply a prescription which is listed on the repeat list of the electronic patient record. But before that... Obesity is an acknowledged problem in the Western world and various methods have been employed by doctors trying to combat it. One weapon in a GP's arsenal is a referral for weight loss counselling, either in a group or one-to-one. But which method's most effective? I'm joined on the phone now by Kate Jolly, who's a senior clinical lecturer in public health and epidemiology at the University of Birmingham. She and her colleagues have been conducting a randomised controlled trial to compare a range of weight loss interventions um, in primary care. Now, Kate, um, the interventions that we're talking about are some that people in the UK might might know about, but uh, outside it might not be so apparent. So could you just set out for us what each intervention is? Certainly, Duncan. We had... Um Six different active interventions. One which is probably well known throughout the world is Weight Watchers, um, which is a commercially operated programme with uh, group-based support that happens once a week um, at a particularly fixed time where people are weighed and they offer sort of mutual support around weight loss and sort of targeted goals. Slimming World is really quite a similar programme, another commercially operated programme. Again, a very similar sort of structure. Um, And Rosemary Connolly is a a third commercial group that we used. This differs slightly from the other two in terms of having an exercise session as part of the group-based weekly session. Um, But but all three groups offer individual weighing, a little bit of one-to-one support, group-based support, and um, certainly at the very least an encouragement to be physically active. We also had a programme which was a a National Health Service-run group-based programme, which differs from the commercial ones in that everybody had to start at the same time and then they moved forward as a sort of closed group, whereas commercial programmes people can start any week. And we then offered two programmes in primary care, which were um, delivered either in general practice, usually by the practice nurse, or in local pharmacies. And each of these were one-to-one programmes dealing with a whole range of um, weight management issues, setting goals, motivational support, encouragement to be physically active. We also had a choice arm in which people could choose any of those six. And then we had a a comparator group. The comparator group, like all the others, received a a letter of invitation from their general practitioner. But they were um, offered 12 vouchers, which enabled them free access to um, a local leisure or fitness centre and they could go along and either swim or join an exercise class or go to the gym. And all the programmes were free for 12 weeks. Okay. Now, you recruited people and randomised them to to these different arms of the trial. How did you set up that recruitment? What was the uh, criteria for that? Well, the criteria was um, that somebody was classified as obese or were eligible for weight management services in our community. If somebody was white ethnicity and had no other chronic disease, then our threshold was a BMI of 30. If somebody was on a chronic disease register, then the threshold was lowered. And additionally, if they were of South Asian origin, the threshold was lowered even further. And that's because of increased risks of overweight in these particular groups. Mm. And that's based on uh, on the NHS's uh, pre-existing criteria for that? Exactly, yes. 
Now, once you'd uh, carried out your trial, what what did you find? Um, how did weight loss and activity and things like that differ between the groups? Well, all of the programmes, including our comparator control group, if we took their weight at the beginning and then their weight after 12 weeks, every group lost a significant amount of weight statistically. That was quite a wide range, That the lowest amount at 12 weeks being in the, the general practice arm, which was 1.4 kilograms, a mean loss, up to the largest one, which was Weight Watchers, which was 4.4 kilograms lost. We analysed that data, assuming that anybody who had missing data actually hadn't lost any weight. So it's quite a sort of conservative analysis. Yeah. And so that's after the 12-week programme was finished. But suppose the the litmus test really is is how well people were able to keep that weight off. So did you looked at that too? Yes. Yeah, so after a year, all the programmes, again, had this significant loss from baseline to follow-up, except for the two primary care programmes. But then we obviously wanted to see whether or not programmes were better than just having our free vouchers to a, a fitness centre, so to our control arm. And in that situation, at the end of the programme, only Weight Watchers and the Rosemary Connolly programme, so both commercial programmes, they were the only two that had significantly more weight loss than our comparator group. Mm. And there you're talking about significant in a uh, statistical sense. Uh, how about in a clinical sense? You know, There has to be a certain amount of weight loss before it will make a, a difference to people's health. Let, let's take the Weight Watchers um, group for an, for an example. So, so after a year... Um, people in the Weight Watchers group, they'd lost 2.4 kilograms more than our comparator group. So they'd lost about three and a half kilograms over that time. It's quite interesting to see the proportion of people who've lost 5% of their body mass. Sticking with the Weight Watchers, 31% of um, the participants in that arm had lost 5% of body mass after a year. Um, It was down as low as about 15% in the primary care arms. And that's an amount of weight loss that fits with significant health benefits in the future. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, I suppose the really interesting question here is why some of these plans were more successful than the others. For a start, if we look at how well people were actually able to to carry out the plans, you looked at uh, attendance, compliance and completion of the plans. How did that change across the the groups? The group-based programmes had better attendance than the one-to-one primary care programmes. So um, we looked at it by whether people attended at least half of the 12 sessions that were planned. In our primary care arms, it's actually less than 30% of people, whereas in the commercial programmes, it was more. Um, It was was 50% or so of our sample. And in the Weight Watchers arm, actually, it was 70% of people went to at least half of the sessions. So attendance rates were better in the group-based sessions. And so do you think that's to do with group activity of it, uh, peer pressure perhaps or peer support encouraging people to do this kind of thing? I think it may well be. I mean, we're obviously into the sort of hypothesis um, developing stage at this point. But but yes, it may well be that people get something from the group support um, more than they get in a a, a one-to-one sort of situation. The other thing is that certainly two of the um, groups, the, the Weight Watchers and the Slimming World, are run by successful slimmers, so really successful peers. And, and that might offer a very good role model to people. Sure. So if the, the one-to-one sessions weren't so uh, successful, these sort of NHS-led ones, what do you think we should learn from, from these commercial programmes? Or should we just uh, rely on them and, and perhaps uh, fund people to go into them more often? 
Well, there may be other elements about the primary care programmes that made them less successful. It may be the group support issue. It may be around the timing. The commercial programmes tend to run in the evenings, and that might be more convenient for some people, whereas obviously general practices and pharmacies close at a particular time. And and so actually there may have been an issue about um, how easy it was to get to sessions. And it may again be about sort of the expertise of the people running it. Practice nurses, for example, have to do a lot of different tasks and um, weight management being only one of many. And so it may be they're just not as specialist um, as the peers and the um, group leaders from the commercial programmes. Sure. I mean, it'd be interesting to, to try and, and find out exactly how that works. Do you know of any uh, research that's that perhaps done that? or that... I, do, I don't, actually. And I think you know, if it hasn't been done, it's certainly an area that um, needs further exploration. There are lessons that primary care could learn from the commercial operators. You know, maybe the group situation is very important. Now, maybe that's something that can't be provided in general practices, but maybe it could. And there may be an issue about somebody who is you know, a real specialist in um, behavioural change um, and particularly around weight that might help if, if, if one person perhaps took on that role within a practice. Great. Well, uh, Kate, thank you very much for talking about your research with us. Thank you. And that article is now available on bmj.com. An ethnographic study brings to mind a sociologist observing a lost Papua New Guinean hill tribe. But in this case, the group studied was more mundane, but apparently no better understood, GP receptionists. Deborah Swigglehurst from the Centre for Primary Care and Public Health at Queen Mary University of London and her colleagues observed reception staff for over a month as they logged and filed repeat prescriptions to find out exactly how they did it. Earlier this week, Deborah joined me in the studio to discuss her findings. So why did you decide to to look at it? Did you have an inkling that maybe receptionist roles weren't exactly as defined? Um, Was there some previous research that had indicated that? Um, There's been very little um, previous research on the role of the receptionist. Our interest in this area um, grew out of a a wider ethnographic project in which we're looking at the role of the electronic patient record in primary care. It became very clear to us that we couldn't um, study that in isolation. We therefore had an idea of looking at at various organisational routines and repeat prescribing was one that stood out as being um, potentially important and interesting from the point of view of quality of practice and safety of practice. Mm. Um, The way you went about doing this is uh, interesting and and different from quite a lot of the research obviously that we publish in the BMJ. So you observed reception staff as they went about their role. Just very briefly, obviously everything is in your research paper, but could you give us sort of the bottom line of your of your findings one of the key findings really um, is the extent to which the quality and safety of repeat prescribing depends not only on formal pr- protocols and the use of standard operating procedures um, but on very close collaboration between um, doctors and receptionists and technologies We've highlighted um, what we've called the the mindful and creative work that is done by receptionists. It's very common for standard protocols and technical solutions to be recommended. What we've shown is the importance of looking beyond that and considering much more carefully the local and very practical judgments um, that is required by frontline staff 
it is very common for receptionists to have to ponder on when or how to prompt GPs to check particular items um, that a patient has requested or prompt them to make specific decisions. They are very adept at using formularies to match brand names with generic drug names. They do things such as um, telephoning patients to clarify ambiguous requests um, or to make them aware that a, a request for a prescription has been declined. They may keep individual notebooks um, or shared notebooks uh, with jottings about the, the learning that they've done on the job. Um, if a patient has requested a drug for hypertension, they might look, take a look in the notes to see if a recent blood pressure check has been done and make a judgment about whether it's in an acceptable range. These examples are the very common day-to-day uh, -day types of decisions that receptionists may be making. And the kind of decisions that perhaps clinical staff or at least those who designed the electronic systems uh, weren't necessarily aware of. One of the assumptions that is, is commonly held is that the repeat prescription is simply a prescription which is listed on the repeat list of the electronic patient record um, and available to patients without the need for an appointment just over half of the requests that we observed being made by receptionists were for drugs that were either not listed on that repeat list or were listed with a different name or at a different dose or, or were apparently due at a different time to the patient's request. We came to realise that this definition of a repeat prescription, which is um, inscribed into the software, is far from straightforward and that these categories are much more fluid and um, negotiated in, in real-life practice. Mm. The other thing regarding um, system design is the sense in which the computer is assumed to be um, a simple, reliable container of information which will assure that past decisions made by doctors about who may or may not receive a prescription are carried forward in a very straightforward manner. In reality, there's a lot more to it than that. So uh, were any of those contexts you know, better for, for supporting staff in making these decisions or perhaps uh, curtailing any bad decision-making that might be done? It seems to be important in the training of reception staff to ensure that the training does go beyond knowing the rules or knowing the protocol or knowing how to use the computer, but that um, it acknowledges the kinds of uncertainty that might arise, furthermore um, identifies who is responsible to manage particular kinds of uncertainty. Of course, to enable this to happen, we would suggest that an environment of effective communication is, is very important. In our study, we found that where it was easy for receptionists to communicate with clinicians, there seemed to be less perplexity in, mm. in the process. So there needs to be a greater acknowledgement of the really rather difficult judgments that receptionists are having to make. Something for our GP listeners to, to keep in mind, perhaps. This hidden work isn't going to be restricted to repeat prescription. And with the overhaul in the way the NHS is going to be working, 
this might be an opportunity to to bear in mind some of these these hidden systems uh, in the future. Have you got any sort of basic rules that that they should adhere to? I think more than anything, um, we would hope that our work would prompt people, and this includes clinicians, researchers and commissioners of care, um, just to think a little differently about some of the systems that are often taken for granted. There is without doubt going to be interest in areas like repeat prescribing and perhaps increasing pressure on practices to generate data. Commissioners need, need to consider what cannot be captured about repeat prescribing processes when one focuses solely on data collection or solely on the technical aspects and also to accept that it is unlikely that there is one best way of running repeat prescribing or indeed running any particular um, system process in general practice. We wouldn't claim from this study of four practices to draw up guidance or to make any particular recommendations about how practice should be done. But I think that one can learn lessons from this kind of research that um, is relevant to many different aspects of practice. Mm, Absolutely, and at least bear in mind that you can't always plan for everything. Mm. Great, well, Deborah, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.